Father in heaven, we do praise and thank you for today, Lord. We praise you for who you are. That is the greatest of all, the most perfect and righteous, one true living God. And we praise you for all that you've done, Lord, for your work of creation, redemption, and restoration, for our salvation, our joy, and our eternal bliss. We praise you for your daily provision and your comfort and encouragement in our lives. We praise you for the Holy Spirit and his conviction and power, his sealing guarantee. Lord, we praise you for your church, the body, which you bring together and sanctify. Despite our many sins and spots and stains, you cleanse us and renew us and promise to remake the world again into a better place. Lord, we praise you for you are the King of glory and we pray that Jesus would come back soon. But until he does, cause us to be faithful. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. If you're just joining us, my name is Pastor Jeremy Lobdell, and we are so glad that you are here to worship with us today. I have something in my hand, and perhaps you can see it. It is a coin, a small little silver one, called a quarter. You know how this works. Call it in the air. Tails. Everyone knows that there are two sides to every coin, what we often refer to as a heads or a tails. Last week in our series in the book of Mark, we looked at Mark chapter 9, verses 33 through 41. We ended in 41 where Jesus said, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So in that section, Jesus is talking about rewards or the positive side of things, something to work towards or earn or look forward to. But in the next section, Jesus is going to talk about the other side of the coin, about punishment. And so today's sermon is entitled Heaven, Hell, and Everything in Between. And what we'll try to do in the next few minutes is exactly that. We'll talk about heaven, we'll talk about hell, and everything in between. Now the bulk of this section is on the doctrine of hell, and so I'll spend a good amount of time there. But I want to keep the broader perspective and the context of this whole series and book. And so we want to see everything that's going on, not just the individual verses. So I'll make sure to refresh our memory on those other two parts as well. So starting with heaven then hell, and then talking about everything in between. So let's look at Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 42. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to follow along with me. If not, it'll be up on the screen. No worries. Hopefully they're in a good spot where you can get to them and read them and spend time with the Lord every day. 42nd verse of the ninth chapter of the book of Mark. Mark 9, 42 says this, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. 
And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So two sides to every coin. Let's talk about the first. Heads or heaven? Heads or heaven? Now you may ask the question if you're looking at this passage, Pastor Jeremy, where do you get the idea of heaven out of that? And there are a couple different spots where it actually shows up. One is in verse 47, where Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. And the other is in verses 43 and 45, where Jesus talks about entering into life. Now, a lot of times when we read that, we kind of blitz through it and we think that it means go through life maimed or crippled. But actually, it talks about entering into life and that life that it's referring to is future life, eternal life, heaven, or the kingdom of God. So in this passage, it shows up in those two main ways. Now, as I said that, you probably noticed that I said verses... 43 and 45. And if you're a careful student of Scripture, or even if you're just somewhat attention to detail, you say, wait a minute, 43, 45, what happened to 44? Same thing with uh, verse 46. We go from 45 to 47. What's going on there? Perhaps Pastor Jeremy is just leaving out verses he doesn't want to talk about. Or maybe, oh no, there's some problem with the ESV or the Bible. Well, here's what happened. Let me give you just a little aside so you can have more confidence in your Bible and talk well to your friends, and we'll get right back into the text. But I think it's important to answer, where did verse 44 and 46 go? Verse 44 and 46 essentially say the exact same thing as a verse later in that passage. And so what happened then is originally, most scholars believe, is that the scribe who is copying this text, took that phrase and added it in two more times um, for clarification on the other lines. Now, that may, as a Bible believer, give you a little bit of concern. You may say something like, oh man, what's going on there? How can I trust the Bible? Well, here's the deal. We believe God is perfect and we believe God is powerful. And therefore, in his perfection and in his power, he can powerfully preserve his word for us today. How did he do so? Well, for the first 1,500 years of New Testament history, he did so through handwritten copies. As you know, human beings make mistakes. And indeed, there are what scholars would call variants or differences in the manuscripts themselves to the tune of 400 thousand different times. Now you may hear that number and go, whoa, so how in the world do we know what we have is accurate and what we have is the word of God? Well, there's a long answer to that. I'm giving you a short one today. The short answer is basically we can trust God, but scientifically speaking, there's this thing called textual criticism 
And what you can do is compare the various manuscripts to see what the differences are and then easily figure out what the original might have been. So, for example, in that science, there are basically four types of differences. One is spelling. You notice right away whether John has an H or no H, J-O-N or J-O-H-N. Doesn't change the meaning, doesn't affect anything. If you verify it in multiple different copies, you can figure out which one it was. Same thing with order. The scribe might accidentally flip the order. You might have Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ. Doesn't change anything. Another thing you might have is something that is what's called a non-viable variant. Something that doesn't make any sense at all and is just butchered. Maybe they're getting sleepy or fell asleep at the wheel and it's it doesn't even work. The fourth thing you have is something that's called a viable variant, which is two different manuscripts could be interpreted. It could be interpreted two different ways and you have equal evidence. And then what would happen is scholars would sit back and say, okay, what is the right answer? Now, of those four categories, it's important that you know that what we're talking about is about 20,000 lines of Scripture. Of those 20,000 lines, only 40 fall into the fourth category. In other words, 99.8% of your Bible has 100% agreement across the board. The 0.002% where there could be a potential alternate reading does not affect a single core or essential doctrine. So in other words, God has powerfully and faithfully preserved his word for us today, and what you have you can trust. So verse 44 and 46, they don't need to be there because we already have it later at the end of the chapter in verse 48. However, um, you can be certain that what you have is the word of God. Some older translations like the King James keep it in, but the newer ones with the best manuscript evidence recognize that as an addition and leave it out. So, that's what happened with verse 46 and 44. Now let's go back to talking about heaven, because that's the good stuff, and that's the fun stuff, and that's where we want to be. So there are two terms in that passage that talk about heaven. One is the kingdom of God. The other is life, eternal life, entering into life. There's also an image that's been used over and over again in this um, teaching section to describe or hint at the future coming kingdom of God. And that image is little children. So why in the world would little kids be an image of the kingdom of God? I mean, they have boogery noses, they get in trouble, they fight, they throw fits. They're the least of these, especially in that society. Why is that? The reason is, is because children have a concealed future. Their future is yet unknown. We get some hints of what they will be and their personality types and their gifting and things early on. But even the people that know them best don't know what they will be when they are fully grown. There is a coming future state that exists within that child that is yet to be re revealed. Furthermore, they have a future dignity. That thing that 
we don't know what it is that they're going to be. We believe because of God's grace that it'll be good, that they will develop into something that we can be proud of and look forward to and see and receive with happiness and excitement and joy. So children are an image of the kingdom of God because they have a concealed future and a future dignity. The kingdom of God is concealed to us and it has a future dignity. It is something that we know will come, but we don't exactly know when or what, but we know that it's good. We know that in the coming kingdom that righteousness rules and Jesus reigns and every tear is wiped away and we're given new bodies that are perfect and free from pain and the fall is done away with and there's a new heaven and a new earth and all is well. That's going to be a good day. And so what we experience now is like a child in their experience. It's real, but it is not realized. It is already, but not yet. There is a hope for the future that what's coming is what's better than what is. And we can say with faith and confidence in the word of God that although we experience good things now, Whatever we experience in heaven will be infinitely better. Although we, whatever it is we experience now, heaven is better. Heaven is better. And a lot of people that don't have that hope, man, they try to fill it up now. And you know how that works. They go after money. They go after pleasure. They go after entertainment. They go after drugs. They go after sex. They go after food. They go after whatever they can to help them feel good for the moment. But by grace through faith, we affirm what Scripture and Jesus says, that no matter how good that food, no matter how fulfilling that hard work, no matter how exciting that pleasure, heaven will be infinitely better. Heaven is better than being on the best drugs, than having the best sex, than having the most money, than having the most pleasure, the best vacation or whatever. Heaven is infinitely better. We don't know exactly what it is, but we know that whatever it is, heaven is better. So number one, the first point I'm trying to make is that heaven is the best. Heaven is the best. Whatever it is, that you've experienced that's good, heaven is so much better. Now, the other side of the coin that we talk about in verses 43 through 48 is the darker side, and that is hell. I know this topic is not preached on much in churches today, and I actually think that could be a large reason for our struggle with evangelism. If we don't talk about hell, there's no reason to tell someone else about heaven. But because there is a horrible place that we don't want to go to, we should tell them about the good place that we do. So let's talk about hell for a little bit today, not because we want to, but because Jesus did. In fact, when you look at scripture, you find that the word for hell, Gehenna, occurs 12 times in the New Testament. 11 of those 12 are on the lips of Christ himself. In other words, the vast majority, the bulk of New Testament teaching that we get on hell is from the loving Jesus. The loving Jesus talked about hell more than anybody else. 
He is the one who created it, and he's actually the one who sends people there. This is a big deal. Historically, this doctrine has always been affirmed by the church. And it is only in the modern day and liberal times where people are trying to turn it into something else. Like annihilation, saying that it's temporary and eventually it's done. Or saying that there's no such thing as hell, but there's this universal idea that everyone, once they're deceased, eventually makes their way into heaven. Also untrue on many accounts. But let's talk about what is true and what Jesus says and what we know. What we do know is that um, there was a valley outside the city of Jerusalem called Gehenna. comes from uh, the Old Testament where the sons of Hinnom owned this valley. It's translated from Hinnom into Gehenna, into the New Testament uh, Greek. And what it was is essentially a landfill. And it doesn't look neat and tidy like ours out there east of Midland. But instead, it is a place of filth and the stink, and rot, there's random fires burning, there's maggots, there's worms, there's rats, there's carcasses, there's all kinds of intensely disgusting, gross things that you don't want to be anywhere near. In other words, if you were living in Jerusalem, you wanted to live as far away from Gehenna as you could be. Whatever you do, don't go there. That place is sick disgusting, filthy, yuck. Well, Jesus picks up on this imagery then in the New Testament when he talks about the eternal lake of fire that we learn about later in Revelation chapter 20. And he begins to acquaint people with this imagery. And he says it's very analogous to that garbage dump outside the city. That it is a real place, just like the garbage dump. It's real. It's not some figment of your imagination, but it is a real place what dimension it's in or how it works in the space-time continuum, I don't know, but Jesus says that hell is real. It's a real place. Not only is it real, but it's eternal. It is eternal. So this is no to annihilationism. This is no to purgatory. This is no to things that believe that it is temporary. It is instead a place of eternal punishment with unquenchable fire. Hell is the worst. Hell is the worst place that you can possibly imagine. Now, I know that in contemporary society, we say things like, oh, I'm just going through hell, or man, that's like hell, or what the hell, or whatever. And we throw this term around like it's really no big deal. But the Bible assures us that it is, in fact, a very big deal. That there is nothing worse than hell. Now, I want to be compassionate to your experience here and the evil in our world. And I know that sometimes we can see things, whether it's a holocaust or whether it's suffering or children suffering or abuse or terrible, terrible things that are too terrible to say on this camera. That the reality of sin has made life so very miserable in certain circumstances that it could very well be described as hell. And yet, what we see when we look at Scripture, 
is that no matter how bad it is in this world, it's nothing compared to eternal separation from God, darkness, and unquenchable fire. The torment and terror and horror of hell is worse than anything else. One side of the coin is heaven. That Heaven is the very best. It's better than the highest of highs, the greatest of greats. The other side of the coin is hell. That hell is absolutely, and when I say absolutely, I mean absolutely, categorically, beyond anything else, the very worst possible outcome for one's life. Now, if that's true, and you're hearing that today, I hope that does stir something in you. I hope that strikes fear in you. There's a reasonable amount of fear to be had of hell. If you're afraid of hell and you don't want to go there, there is a very good way to get out of that. And that is by believing in Jesus Christ as a substitutionary payment for your sins. When you affirm Jesus as the God-man, God-made human, and you believe that his death on the cross paid for your sins, and you trust in the power of his resurrection to redeem fallen humanity, then you have been what Christians call saved. You've been saved from judgment. You've been saved from death. You've been saved from destruction. You've been saved from the power of sin and hell. Jesus came to save you. And that is why he talks about hell so much is because he doesn't want you to go there. He knows how bad it is. And he wants you to be with him forever. And so if you've never believed in him, you take it serious. And in this moment, this very instant, you stop and pray and confess your sins and believe in his death and burial and resurrection. Number one, heaven. It's the best. Go there. Number two, hell. It's the worst. Whatever you do, don't go there. Number three, the third side of the coin. Wait a minute, Pastor Jeremy. Third side of the coin. Well, if I was talking with someone who really wanted to argue with me, they'd probably look and say there's heads and there's tails. And there's that middle section too. There's everything in between. And I would say, okay, you got me there. You're right. There is something between those two sides. Heaven and hell, because they're for eternity, are a lot bigger than whatever's in between. But to be fair and to be honest, there is something in between. And that's the perspective we have to have when we look at our lives. Eternity is so much greater. It's so much bigger. It's so much longer that what's in between absolutely pales in comparison. And yet, for us who are locked in this space-time continuum, it feels like forever. Here we are waiting for the kingdom of God, the return of Christ, the new heavens and the new earth. And we're like, come Lord Jesus, when is it? And for us, it feels like a thousand years, but for him, it's only a day. 
But here we are in between. One foot in heaven, one foot on earth. Pulled between our eternal home and our current state. Looking forward to the future reality as pilgrims, wanderers, and sojourners, but knowing that we have to be faithful today. So what do we do then? Well, it's interesting how this works. So Jesus tells us how great heaven is. He warns us about the horror of hell. And then, in verse 49, he says, everyone will be salted with fire. What? What are you talking about, Lord? We just got done with unquenchable fire and worm and stuff like that. And now you're saying, everyone, what in the world does that mean? Well, hang on with me for just a few couple more minutes and I'll show you what that is. The idea of being salted in the Old Testament carried with it a number of different connotations. Salt was absolutely essential in the ancient world. It was a preservative, it was a purifier, and it was used for seasoning. You see that playing out throughout the sacrificial system. In particular, for example, when they offered a grain offering, the grain would be mixed with salt to season it for the one receiving it, the Lord. It was also true if they offered a young goat that, for for example, they may rub the meat with salt or they may purify the altar beforehand. In such a case, the salt is being used to season and purify. In the New Testament then, now moving into our time period, our era of salvation, Romans tells us this in chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Present your bodies, who you are, your essence, as a sacrifice or a living sacrifice, holy, which would mean pure, purified, and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So follow with me here from, in terms of the analogy. If you consider yourself a sacrifice, if your life, your body, your everything is a sacrifice, if we are sacrificed, then like the Old Testament sacrifices, we too must be salted. We must be seasoned and we must be purified. So when you take that verse, verse 49, it says everyone, all these believers, all these people trusting and following in Jesus will be salted with fire. What it is talking about then is that we as living sacrifices are being purified and seasoned for God. It is true then that we will be salted with fire. Not the fires of hell, but instead the fire of purification. We walk through the refining furnaces of life. It is hot and it hurts. And like a sacrifice, you may, if you're like me, at times feel like you are being cut open and ripped apart. Anybody there this morning? As a believer, you will never go to hell. But you very may well feel like you're going through it. Because Jesus assures you in Mark chapter 9 verse 49 that you will be salted with fire. The part of the process between 
our temporary home and our eternal one, the way to get there is through suffering and sacrifice. And that means we will be seasoned and purified or salted with fire. I think personally this COVID time has been a lot of that. It's brought up all kinds of things. It's torn down idols. It's brought out people's emotions in ways that are both healthy and unhealthy. The flood, no doubt, has done the same and showed us what is truly essential. It's our family and our faith. We may lose everything else. But what do we have? We have the kingdom of God. I want to get ready to close with an illustration that comes from Leadership Magazine in 1983. I'm just going to read it to you because it's absolutely beautiful. But in recapping what we've talked about today, we've said this. We've said, Mark chapter 9 addresses heaven, hell, and everything in between. It's the positive side and the negative side. It says that heaven is the absolute best. Whatever you do, go there. And it also says that hell is the absolute worst. Whatever you do, don't go there. And in between, on the way, as a sojourner, pilgrim, and alien, remember that even though it feels like you're going through hell, you're not. Hell is worse. Heaven is better. And what you're experiencing right now is being seasoned, purified, or salted with fire, presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice, then you know that every drop of blood or every drop of sweat that you pour out, every single drop will be rewarded. You have the guarantee of the harvest. Del Tar was a missionary who served in West Africa. He relates the following story, he says, I was always perplexed by Psalm 126 until I went to the Sahel, that vast stretch of savannah, more than 4,000 miles wide under the Sahara Desert. In the Sahel, all the moisture comes in, the fourth, four month, in a four-month period, May, June, July, and August. After that, not a drop of rain falls for eight months. The ground cracks from dryness and so do your hands and feet. The winds of the Sahara pick up the dust and throw it thousands of feet into the air. It comes slowly drifting across West Africa's fine grit. It gets inside your mouth and your clothes and even your watch. It stops. Year's food, of course, must all be grown in those four months. And in that time, people grow sorghum, sorghum and milo in small fields. Now, October and November, these are beautiful months. The granaries are full, the harvest has come, people sing and dance, they eat two meals a day. The sorghum is ground between two stones, millstones, to make flour and then mush with the consistency of yesterday's cream of wheat. The sticky mush is eaten hot, and they roll it into little balls, between their fingers, drop it into a bit of sauce, and then pop it into their mouths. The meal lies heavy on the stomachs so they can sleep. December comes. The granaries start to recede. Many families omit the morning meal. 
Certainly by January, not one family in 50 is still eating two meals a day. By February, the evening meal diminishes and the meal shrinks even more during March and children begin to succumb to sickness. You don't stay well on half a meal a day. April is the month, he says, that haunts my memory. In it, you hear the babies crying in the twilight. Most of the days are passed with only an evening cup of gruel. Then, inevitably, it happens. A six- or seven-year-old boy comes running to his father one day with sudden excitement. Daddy, Daddy, we've got grain, he shouts. Son, you know we haven't gotten grain for for many weeks. Yes, we have, the boy insists. Out in the hut where we keep the goats, there's a leather sack hanging up on the wall. I reached up, put my hand down in there, and Daddy, there's grain in there. Give it to Mommy so she can make flour, and tonight our tummies can sleep. Father stands motionless. Son, we can't do that, he softly explained. That's next year's seed grain. It's the only thing between us and starvation. We're waiting for the rains, and then we must use it. The rain finally arrives in May. When they do, the young boy watches as his father takes the sack from the wall and does the most unreasonable thing imaginable. Instead of feeding his desperately weakened and starving family, he goes to the field with tears streaming down his face and takes the precious seed and throws it away. He scatters it in the dirt. Why? Because he believes in the harvest. The seed is his. He owns it. He can do anything he wants with it. The act of sowing hurts so much that he cries. But as the African pastors say when they preach from Psalm 126, brothers and sisters, this is God's law of the harvest. Don't expect to rejoice until later on when you have been willing to sow in tears. To what should we liken the kingdom of God? kingdom of God is like a child, a sower, a grain of wheat. And when it falls to the ground, it dies. But I believe in the sowing. I believe in the burial. I believe in the resurrection. I believe in the return. I believe in the harvest. I believe in the kingdom of God. Heaven is for real. Hell is for real. Heaven is the best. Hell is the worst. Whatever you do, don't go there. But know that if you are believing in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, that every single drop that you pour out and sow on his behalf will be worth it. Even when you're being salted with fire, seasoned and purified, spend it all, sow your entire life on the kingdom of heaven. It will 
be worth it. Father in heaven, we thank you for today, Lord, and we conclude in just saying, Lord, your kingdom come. Lord, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. May the harvest come. May Jesus return. May our efforts be rewarded. May the seeds take root. May they bear fruit. May every single drop that's given out or done in your name be blessed by you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.